Hi everyone, it's Joachim Akren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast. Podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. David Amor is the co-founder and CEO of Playmint, a new kind of games company building games for Web3. David has had a long career in gaming, from EA in the early 90s to having started several gaming startups, including Delinquent, which got sold to Mag Interactive some years ago. In this discussion with David, we talk about the lessons he's learned from his previous gaming startups, what are the commonalities that David sees the successful gaming founders having, and why David decided to start a new games company doing specifically Web3 games. All right, David, we're recording. Welcome to the show. Hey, nice to be here. Thanks for the invite. Sure thing. It's good. Good to have somebody who's done a few companies in their in their life <laughs> talk about it, share sort of learnings from from several games companies. So, but the the first thing I would like to cover is kind of a three minute origin story and help the audience get to know you a bit better, like how how you made your way into gaming and and eventually to to found Playmint now. Okay, three decades and three minutes. Ready? Let's go. Okay, so my dad was a teacher, computer studies teacher. And he, in the summer holidays, he would bring back a computer. I, I looked it up. It was the Commodore PET 2001. So, I mean, Google that. That's, a, that's an old machine. But, but I think at that point in time, a lot of people were afraid of computers, didn't dare touch them. But to me, it was just a gadget that we had in the house in the summer holidays. L- limited amount of things you could do with it. So I learned to program it and play what little games there were. And I think it just made me comfortable with computers and gave me an early interest. So grateful for that I really love programming love playing games and but by the time I got to 18 19 whatever it was I was sick of education and really wanted to do something else my parents like that that's fine you don't need to do further education but you're not in this house unless you get a job and I was sort of dragging my heels about that and I remember my dad circled two ads in the local paper one was to be a trainee manager of WH Smith's which is like a low-grade news agent in, in the UK. And the other one was to be a games tester in a local company. And like, what did 18-year-old mean? <laughs> you know, that was a pretty easy choice. And I was lucky. It was a company called Mindscape that I don't suppose many people would know now. But a couple of things that were cool about it. One was it was 20 people in that office. And it, within those 20 people, you had game production, you had sales, you had distribution, you had customer support, you had everything and when there's only 20 people in the company you get to see all the different disciplines of a game publisher so that was pretty cool and i didn't really know what i was doing but i love computers and so you you know i was learning quick the other thing is we had some great distribution deals so we had distribution even though you might have heard of uh, mindscape we had distribution for bitmap brothers games which were big games on the amiga if you remember those and and also distribution for origin which made ultima and wing commander so you know, I was handling support on those, testing those, and also doing some of the ports. Like sometimes we'd port those Origin games to the Amiga or, you know, so it gave me great exposure to some some great titles. So that's sort of an early start. I, I left that publisher and joined EDA where I was there from like 94 to uh, 2001. Great place. 
to learn the games industry, EA, particularly at that time, was just a blue chip games publisher. And in my time there, visited 100 developers, external developers, which was so great to get a sense of the landscape. Also was part of the Bullfog team there for a while, which was a, a great developer. So really great time. 2001, I decided that I sort of wanted to break away from the comfort of a big publisher like EA and started running my own studios and own companies and shortly created a company called uh, Relentless. Relentless was a game, a game studio, about 130 of us. And we made a popular game called Buzz, which was a music quiz game. And in fact, you know, really, really big hit, not particularly well-known outside of Europe and was one of those games around the time of SingStar and iToy. And I think it was like the biggest selling game on in PlayStation Europe for a couple of years. And we ended up selling 12 million of those. So, but you know, the nature of that business is the the revenue generated from from that hit game, that series of games, all went to Sony. And so when there was an opportunity to move into self-publishing, which was, you know, 10 years later and plenty of skews over a period of time there at Relentless, then moved into mobile free-to-play, which is, of course, self-publishing and set up a developer, ultimately sold that one to a great company called Mag Interactive, Swedish company. And then, so did mobile free-to-play for about 10 years and then most recently moved into blockchain about a year, slightly over a year ago. So, and along the way, various other games companies, I think probably that, that I founded, maybe five, I think, some more successful than others. So yeah, Playment is my fifth and is focusing on the emerging Web3 games market. How did I do? Three minutes? That's great. Yeah, <laughs> it's perfect. I think it's like six, but like, okay, works. <laughs> like one of the things that like fascinates me a lot about in gaming is like you have a games company and you have limited runway to get like something working and proving that you're on the right track. And when it often comes down to the velocity and making progress, why do you think it's essential to move quickly? And how can first-time founders who just started out building a company, how can they make sure that they're they're making progress quickly enough at the start when they still are figuring things out? I think it's unrealistic to plan a two-year game that is going to hit the mark, you know, when you're in the process of building a company and raising finance, all those things. I think I'm a big believer, I suppose I was really taught it, maybe some games that we did at Relentless and some games, certainly in mobile, you just get used to a different release cadence. And for a long time, I carried around this idea that for a game to be great, it needed to be big. But that was proven to be not the case. Most, most successful games that I've worked on are quite small in scope. And you realize that you can put something out quite quickly as long as you're really careful with scope. And I think that's the trap that a lot of people fall into, the feeling that it needs to be big to be great. And to feeling that, you know, maybe what we put out in a short period of time doesn't really show the extent of our capabilities. But that's that's the wrong motivation for figuring out what to put out. I think it's far more important to put something out test your thesis and then course correct if you need to, rather than hoping that the game that you're building over two or three years is going to completely hit the mark. And also I think, you know, more generally, and I know not all games can be built in a short period of time, but I think tying yourself up for a really long period to spend four years making a game that may or may not get a 80% Metacritic is quite a punishing use of time. 
and for me personally, at least, particularly when starting a new business, I much prefer to be really, really tight on scope and get something to market quickly. That's something we did with, well, I've done it previously, but also with Playment. Even though we're entering this new world of Web3, we had something out in three months. And it was the smallest game I've ever made, but it was still really popular. And we learned a ton from it. So I feel that's important for certainly all companies that I've been a part of is to try and test your thesis as early as possible. Yeah. What if you actually like get into that, like everybody's believing your big game idea and you want to build it out? Like, should you, should you hold off? Should you do some changes there regarding like where you measure if you're on the right track? Yeah, I think I think that's right. Finding some kind of metric that you think gives you an understanding if you're on the right path. So if that's mobile, then you know, famously, you probably can't test monetization early. But so you look at a, some form of retention metrics, and you know, all categories of games, I think you can get something out fairly early that gives you a useful indication. And and I think when I speak to other game founders, I've heard stories of. It's surprising just how much tolerance there is in the market for low scope games. And and I think that by default, as game makers, we lean in to try and make things more complicated than we need to be, than is needed. So I think being, and also something you can do as a CEO to permit tight scope and say, no, we don't need that. Don't worry about that. This is on me. Let's just do that bit. And then that sort of frees up the game team to say, great, okay, well, we're just going to do that to the best of our abilities and get something out quickly, much, much smaller. Yeah. When you've seen these games companies up close during your career in gaming, where these founders made a successful exit, let's let's put it that way, as a, as a successful company, what do you think are the commonalities that these founders and these company builders have in common that they have that kind of success happen? Yeah, good question. I I suppose an easy way of answering that is if you're generating a lot of revenue and profit, then then you're an attractive option for somebody just for revenue arbitrage point of view. But in a way, that's a less interesting question to answer, you know, way of answering it. I think what I've learned is that if you're looking for an acquisition, I made a mistake in Relentless where I was offered a great deal of money, a life-changing sum of money for to sell the company. And I said no, because things were just going up. And I, at that point in time, I hadn't seen things that subsequently they were going to go worse. But of course, I didn't know that. I was arrogant enough to think that it would just continue. So I think that you know, having some pragmatism, if, if it's a number that's going to change your life for the better and you get to do something else, then... Exactly what are you waiting out for? You, you know, on the assumption that, you know, that, that an exit is what you're looking for. The other one is that I think understanding what acquirers are looking for. And I think there's, I, I, I'm involved with it less than some other people that I know. But where I see people do a great job of it is where they just understand how to match make between companies looking to a Acquire smaller companies and figuring out well what's what's the requirement that they're trying to fulfill, and not just hope that somebody comes and knocks on your door, but just in the habit of talking with people and understanding what it is they're trying to get done, and and therefore proposing something that's perhaps easy to say yes to. It, it fulfills a requirement that the that the bigger company is looking for, and it's a deal where oh okay, well the cash upfront is is only this, and the earnout 
it's just based on that the smaller company doing profitable things therefore okay well that's that's an easy deal to say yes to so i think there's some pragmatism and there's some structuring as to how you can um create something that makes the you know i wouldn't say an easy acquisition but a more likely acquisition how about the founders like what are they focused on like let's just you know not think about the moment where it is like everything's looking good and you have a lot of options but then you've come through a struggle as a founder to build something that is successful down the line what what did they do a few years before that happened what was their foundation for the company hard to get concrete commonality between all of them but i think certainly a trend that i see or not a trend but a observation is that it's more about process than it is about product or mm. uh, you and i i'm sure both seen companies that are really putting everything they can into this idea that the game they're going to build is successful going to be successful and i've seen so many great games that are not successful that you come to realize that you know just having a great game isn't going to be enough to be commercially successful you're probably going to rely on some amount of you know it's not actually luck but it's just forces that you can't see or control that that have an influence over your success which is might as well be luck so i think that in a world where you can't control every attribute that leads to your success then what's a better thing to lean on is a process that means okay we this is we've got a process that allows us to create games that have a chance of being successful but also that process is killing things that we don't think are likely to be successful and you know the two sort of go hand in hand so to me i've uh, whereas i used to put a lot more importance on the game that we're working on now you know if you look at my pitch deck for playment and i said well we're going to make this yeah two slides on the game that we were going to making be making in the end we didn't make that game that's really not the important part of what it is that we're setting out to do yeah i think you nailed it really well there with like building a process and not a game mm. Then thinking about the the team setup, you've gone through starting a new company very recently. What yeah. kind of co-founders should founders be picking? Is there a sort of format that you would follow? Like, like if the CEO is the person who starts putting together the team, or they might not be, it might be the product person, but are there some commonalities that you'd you'd suggest to go after yeah i this as i said i've set up a few games companies and, and this time around the people that i've set up games companies with in the past weren't available or weren't interested or didn't feel like a good fit and so variety of reasons and so that made me think about that what's that process for picking co-founders it put me in an uncomfortable position where i wasn't able to just call up the people that i knew in a one companies with in the past and what and so I have a set of founders in Playment that I, up until a year ago, hadn't worked with directly in, in the past. And and that was something of a test or, or an experiment to say, okay, well, does this still work? And I think that what was super useful is, although I hadn't worked with these co-founders directly, I knew them pretty well. Like I'd, I'd known them for a long time, like, I don't know, five, 10 years to say hi to and had conversations over the years and had a sense of what they were about, what they were motivated by, what they wanted to do, what they'd done in the past, what their skills were. 
And so even though I hadn't worked with them, I got a sense of what they were about. And I I, I knew, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say that I knew their strengths and weaknesses, but I could see, okay, well, we can bolt. This feels like a, a good set of people to start the company with. Also, they're very different in terms of personalities. And, you know, some are very detail orientated and some are fast and loose and some are very empathetic. Others are just get stuff done. And that mix of skills, I think, creates a well-rounded company. It's tempting, of course, just to hire people that are like you. And in a way, that's more harmonious office environment is you don't have somebody coming along trying to put a stick in the spokes. But that but that variety of opinions creates for a more well-rounded strategy, I think. And also, you know, it was, I'll offer this up, which is there's some people that I had hoped that I was going to start the company with, very, very talented engineer that just, for, you know, we can never quite make it work. And it was... And it was tough. And, you know, what I you know didn't feel great because I really wanted to start the company. He felt like a great guy to do it with, but ultimately couldn't quite make it work. And that was frustrating for me. Luckily, what I did is just sort of got over with it and said, right, well, who else do I like working with? Who else do I know? And and it turned out fine. And in fact, I'm super glad that I made the decisions that we did. And I suppose it was a reminder for me that, oh, there are many options here. And I, I think the one thing that I'm really pleased that I did is throughout my career have always made the time to speak to a wide variety of people. I'll take calls without any intention of knowing what the outcome is and not for any specific motivation. I'll go to lots of events for GDC just to meet up with everybody, often agendaless. And the chances of you working with that person, either in a partnership or within a company, might be one in, I don't know, statistically one in a hundred or something, but you have to do the hundred to give yourself the opportunity so that when it is time to do that. So, you know, it's, it's not particularly helpful if you're trying to do this today, but I'm certainly glad that I had spent the preceding years getting to know a set of people that, that, you know, when it came to it, were good people that I could build a company with. All right. That's really awesome. Let's go and talk about Web3 a bit here. Yeah. What got you to appreciate Web3 so that you got to the point where you wanted to do a new games company, which is working in Web3. One of the things I like about the games industry, I made this mistake once, by the way. I remember I, we were king of the hill at Relentless. We made a really a hit game for Sony. We were making tons of money. And uh, I remember going to a talk of Christian Segerstral at BAFTA, And he was talking about the success he was having with Playfish. I walked in King of the Hill and walked out going, okay, I'm, we, uh, this company's going to be dead in two years. Like our company, which turned out to be correct. You know, the, the point was that the market was moving away from us. And and Christian there was describing 20 million people playing whatever Playfish game it was, I guess, the Sim Social, And, uh, you know, a free-to-play business model and a set of things that we now take for granted but it's just a reminder that nothing stays the same for very long and the skills that you learned five years ago are somewhat relevant to now but you know the operational stuff that you're doing now is you need to stay on your toes because it's always changing and mm -hmm. and i think that technology is something that allows for disruption every five years or or so you know much more than other industries that i know so which is great. It means that you, opportunity always, 
is going to come around because there's new technology that creates new business models and new opportunities, new companies, and the incumbents are busy with the thing that they're currently doing to to really focus on new emerging areas. So, you know, I remember making games prior to the internet and then the internet comes along and you go, oh, well, we can do this, this, and this, or motion controllers or mobile phones or free-to-play business models and plenty in between new technologies create new opportunities and it seemed likely to me you know a year and a half ago that blockchain as an interesting new technology with weird attributes about it could be used in games in some way and i had one of the co-founders had a lot of experience in in doing things with blockchain already so that was like a turbo boost for us you know we understood the technical side and something about the audience and, you know, I had this strong feeling that it was going to open up some new avenues for the games industry, even if I couldn't explicitly say what those were. And, you know, when you're starting a business in the games industry, then you really got to, well, it's, it's only useful to focus on a new area where there's expected growth. So I, I, if you think that the Web3 games industry might be 2 or $3 billion a year right now, most people predict that it's going to be a larger number in time to come. And therefore, where's the growth going to come from? It's unlikely to come from EA and Activision, just as those companies didn't create the mobile free-to-play business. It came from elsewhere. Whenever you see a sort of generational change in games, whether you go from you know PC to console to 3D to it, social to mobile, it's not generally the incumbents that may have success, you know, in mobile free to play, it was Rovio and Supercell and, and, and King. And, and, and I think that's likely to happen for web three games as well. I think the successes are going to come from new companies rather than the incumbents. And so it's a great area to focus a business on. So, that, you know, it's a very business focused way of answering that question. And, yeah. and, and truthfully, you know, I couldn't, you know, at the time when we sent that up, we were still asking ourselves, well, as we are now somewhat, like, what is the best route for this technology? And that's really been the journey today is figuring that stuff out. I spend a lot of time now looking at pitch decks from free-to-play developers, like mm-hmm. very capable teams who come to me and they're pitching a Web3 idea. And I think there's still some change that is happening there where this mindset shift from making a game, testing the KPIs to actually building out community, sort of selling the idea and building your user base before you have a game with a white paper, with all sorts of visuals, like enticing content. I think that's something that's really hard for people to wrap around their heads. Have you seen that? What do you do you have any thoughts there? Yeah, I, the challenge is, well, both the challenge and the opportunity is there's no there's no best practice here. There's no playbook for Web3 yet. So on the free-to-play timeline, we're still pre-Candy Crush. You know, it hasn't been established. Now that's a blessing and a curse, right? The, the curse is that we've got nothing to copy. The, the blessing is that we could be the genre-defining game that people in time to come do copy. And so... I think it's it's tough to work out what that is. You know, we have a phrase in the office which we're doing new hard things. There's plenty of old hard things in, that still exist. Making a, any kind of game is hard, 
but let's focus on the new hard things. The other thing I suppose that feels important to me, just because it's a mistake I've made in the past, is that when I was running Relentless and the mobile free-to-play market took off, one of the most popular, I remember seeing a game called Four Picks, One Word. You remember that one? Sort of early mobile. It was a quiz game that was successful on mobile. And I remember looking at it in the pub with the design team and going, wow, this is a terrible game. There's nothing to this. It's very simple. Mm. You just get shown four pictures and trying to figure out what the word is. We make this hit game called Buzz. It's high fidelity. It's got online play. It's got UCG and all of this. So of my first efforts into mobile free-to-play were to try and reproduce what was successful on PlayStation 2 and PlayStation 3, which, of course, was a huge mistake. People didn't want to play that game. It was completely wrong. And so when we moved to now from, you know, most recently I was doing mobile free-to-play to Web3, then I'm careful not to try and assume that the things that worked in mobile free-to-play are going to work in Web3 and, in a way, start more from first principles and really adopt the things that seem interesting in this category. So the, the first game that we built was based on the Loot NFT. And the Loot NFT is this, an NFT that's designed to be used in games, but with no games around it, or at least it was launched without any game. And the thought was that you could use that in whatever games people build for it. But that's a very different way of thinking about game production, starting with a game asset rather than starting with the game. But when you start with a game asset and it and people build around it, and in fact, our first game built around this loot NFT, but we were one of maybe 10 games or 20 games that you could, that you could use this loot NFT in. And so you have this uh, concept of interoperability where this asset that somebody else created could be used in our game but it can be used in other games. And in turn, the things that come out of our game can be used in other people's games. And so you have this sort of interconnecting, interoperable uh, game assets. So, you know, we, we made a point of, and truthfully, if I look at that first pitch deck, a lot of the things in it were a hangover from the mobile free-to-play world and didn't, you know, I still a bit too comfortable there, but but I think that quickly we decided, yeah, let's jump into the world you describe and really understand how this seems to be working in Web3 rather than just lean on in our comfort area, you know? Yeah, I think that's a good place to go and, and talk about something that's very Web3, which you have mentioned briefly is this on-chain gaming. Can you elaborate and, and talk more about what that means? First thing to recognize is that, that Ethereum or other block and other blockchains are a programmable blockchains in that they're Turing complete. You can you can run whatever code you want on, on that blockchain. And to date, it's a, you know a, an NFT, you know an art NFT is a small piece of code that points to a, a JPEG probably sitting on a server somewhere with a bunch of attributes. And the, you know that's like an early use case was these art NFTs, but it was just really simple code in the same way as the first websites were just simple websites. But really there's a lot more that you can do with smart contracts. And again, that's a, a, an odd term that we seem to have settled on. It's just a piece of code that happens to run on a blockchain and you can have it do whatever you want. But, you know, the blockchains have weird attributes that you wouldn't find in regular computers. So if you take Ethereum, it's really, really slow. It's sort of Apple II slow, which is a challenge. But it's also 
distributed amongst 5,000 computers. It's paid for by, not by the person that makes the code, but by the person that uses the code in the form of gas fees. Okay, that's a new attribute. In it, once it's on the chain, particularly if you throw away the keys, it never dies. It just sits there forever. And you, there's no bill to pay by the person that made it. It's permissionless, which means that anybody who wants to interact with it in with code can do it in a composable way so people can build around the code that you've created it doesn't rely on a centralized server that opening up apis so it's got these weird attributes like half a dozen weird attributes that some of which are problematic but some of which open you know a path we believe to a different kind of game and and I, and I think what I've noticed in the Web3 games industry is a lot of things like, you know, guilds and play to earn, those sort of concepts are being challenged now as being economically unsustainable, which sort of relies on a line going up or more players coming in. So it's really, we ask ourselves, never, you know, let's not get distracted by those concepts, but instead say, what new kind of games can we do if we decide to run our game logic on chain? So... To be clear, what I mean by that is that we have a, a game. You can think about the fidelity of that game being sort of an, analogous to a board game. So relatively simple and coarse. But then we create a, a sort of Steam quality, let's call it, front end to experience that. So game logic runs on chain. And then we have a game client that, that looks more polished that connects to that game logic on chain. Does that make sense? Mm. And I think, so where I think that takes us, and again, this is just me speculating at this point, which makes it interesting. You know, I think if I had all the answers, then in a sense, it would be less interesting. But uh, I think where that takes us, I think about the content creator economy a lot. And I think that's, that's really been the big news story of the last 10 years, you know, whether it's TikTok or YouTube or Minecraft or Roblox or Fortnite, you know, the, the popularity of those products is not what the game create, what the creators, you know, the, the, the game makers, sure, they sort of created an environment where people can create content that makes for a rich experience. But I think that where, Often in games, whether it's Minecraft or Roblox, if you're really doing something that's great in there, or or another good example is Defense of the Ancients in Warcraft 3, where you you can have huge success. So, you know, ultimately that mod for Warcraft 3 became Dota. But to really be successful with that, then you're sort of commercially and creatively more limited and you feel, you know, I need to go and break away and become League of Legends for this really to become successful or Dota 2. But similarly, I would say if you're really great at creating content in Minecraft or Fortnite, Roblox, you're probably better off breaking away and building something that you completely, you know, where you have more, more control. And so how that relates to on-chain games is that this, this offers up something different. We're putting our game logic on-chain, but anybody can permissionlessly, permissionlessly build around it and on top of it, and they can also be incentivized. So if somebody builds something that connects with our game world, then, and people are spending money on that, then the money goes to them, not to us. So there isn't the commercial motivation to break away into its, you know, there's the commercial motivation to 
to stay within the ecosystem. And yes, we might take 5% or 5 or 10% for sort of running the world, but the vast majority of the revenue goes from the groups of people building stuff that, that are popular, that are creating value. And that feels fairer to me anyway. Like if, you know, if people are making great things that people are loving spending money on, then it doesn't seem right that it should come go to a company that didn't make it. And that's, you know, that's a Web3 story overall. Who, okay, who owns your Instagram pictures? Is it you or is it Instagram? Because it's certainly not you making money from it. It's Instagram making money from it. And is that cool? We've, you know, we sort of ended up in this weird situation in Web2 where even if you're creating the value, the, the money is going somewhere else. And I think that on-chain Web3 games are an opportunity for creators to build around a central game without feeling the need to break away and do their own thing. And I hope that's, you know, to me, that that's where I think this is going. How do you communicate these ideas to people who are new to Web3? Do, do, you, do you feel that it's examples or people who are already knowledgeable about Web3 coming in and, and trying things out as creators? Uh, what is the angle there to, to actually make, broaden the whole ecosystem? I mean, That's a key question, isn't it? So I'm, I'm plucking numbers out the air, but you, you might say there's three million people playing Web3 games today and three billion people playing games overall. So I mean, it's just tiny. And so a really important question, as you say, is how, how do you broaden this? And sometimes I see people in this space, Web3 games, writing articles and saying, here's why you should get excited about it, you know, consumers or creators but talk is cheap right i mean i i think you just have to build something that's amazing and attracts an, an audience uh, uh, and you know just shut up and build stuff that that, that people want to play and and i don't know if this is a good analogy but someone pointed out to me that a lot of people had a hard time with free to play call gamers let's call them traditional gamers whatever until yeah. league of legends came along oh, oh well okay If free to play is like this, then I'm fine with this. And mm. I think that Web3 Games has to get over that point. And it's not going to be with rhetoric. It's going to get, be with games that people want to play. And and I think, you know, I think a lot of these games have been built by crypto native teams that are learning games. And I think that in the last year, you've seen game native teams learning crypto, let's say. And I'm not, you know, certainly... There's lots for us to learn in the crypto world, but I think certainly in terms of production values, you'll see an increase in quality of of Web3 games over the next year or two. Yeah, I definitely believe like it's like we're in the very early introduction phase of the whole Web3 and things are just molding themselves yeah. in. Yeah, and, and you know, to to be honest, some ideas aren't going the distance. You know, last year there was a lot of distraction about play to earn and and so a lot of you know a lot of people making things in that area and they're now saying hang on that's it doesn't work does it or some variation of it might but certainly the version as first described doesn't and therefore okay if it's certainly you can have an earn component i mean if you have if you're using blockchain to store game assets it means that you have the ability to buy and sell as you wish which I think it's fair for any gamer, you know, you shouldn't, 
the assets that you bought in a game, I don't think should be locked up within the game. I think you should have the rights to buy and sell. And of course, if you can sell, then conceivably you can make some money from selling it. And therefore there can be an earn component, but it certainly can't be everybody expecting to earn because economically that that's obviously unsustainable. So I think what do I say, why I say that is, you know, I guess to your point that we're just in a nascent stage where people are trying stuff out, some of which works, some of which doesn't. Was this true of free to play as well? Presumably, I'm trying to remember. Mm. Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. In a way, free to play had the component of free to play. Yeah, which worked to an extent until we went to a situation where everything was cacked to LTV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, which was which wasn't sustainable because you have uh, gatekeepers who who interrupt that operation model. Yeah. Interesting yeah. times for sure. Yeah, yeah. And 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 I would say that as a area to work in, it's it's thrilling. I mean, it's really I love I love my job when I'm thinking about work in the shower and as I'm walking home from work and and it's a topic of conversation in the pub. You know, no nobody's asking me to do this, it's just engaging. Nobody's figured it out. So what a fun mm. thing to spend your time thinking about. And it's that mm. great mix between creativity and technical aspects that I enjoy about the games industry. So it's a, it's a really fun way to spend the working day and, well, and also outside the working day. Hey, I wanted to ask you about CEO stuff in mm. startups. What kind of people have made good games company CEOs? It's hard. It's hard to find commonality. I think in in the CEOs again, and and there's huge survivorship bias. You know, I, I'm you. You go to GDC and you listen to people talking, and you go, okay, well, these are the attributes that are necessary. But in being a CEO or creating a hit game, but no, that you, you, <laughs> it is not a scientific approach. I I think that what I've learned in my career and i see in other ceos that i admire is somebody that's inspiring the the people think talented people say i want to go and work in this company because i like that guy um mm. and you know i think he's going to do something cool and he doesn't seem like a somebody i wouldn't want to spend the day with so i i, I think that's important the ability of a ceo to hire great people is is super important and, and inspiring can take many forms you know steve jobs is inspiring but it, he's a very different kind of ceo to me but you know i, th I think that's a key point another one is humility and i and i think what i learned has, has been part of being a nordic company i don't know if it's nordic or whether it's the supercell thing but, but this idea of hey i i i'm not the smartest person in the room you shouldn't be as a ceo you probably shouldn't be the smartest person in the room that suggests you're not hiring the right people so and i don't want to be a bottleneck so like hey i don't know what the best answer for all this stuff is but you know here's where we're going and team try and use your you, you engage with what you're doing so just try and use your best skills to try and come up with right decisions here and also it doesn't matter if you're getting them wrong as long as we're catching them relatively early and course correcting. So for me, what I've tried to do in my career, I've run things that were very autocratic in the past, and now I'm deliberately taking a step back. And, you know, that, as I say, that's something I've learned from a Nordic way. Is it Nordic or Supercell or a mobile thing? I'm not sure. But this idea of empowering the team and, you know, you know just people don't come to me for answers for things anymore and i think that's great it means that they're figuring stuff out by themselves i remove myself from the product meetings 
and just focus on strategy and sort of external things now. And I think for me, at least that sort of humility in not thinking that I'm going to be the person that always has the best decisions is, is useful. Right. Last question before we go to the final questions. Uh, mm. What topic do you often think about, but don't get to talk about? Something I think about a lot is opportunity cost and which is of course the concept that all the time you're doing something you could be doing something else and it's it's odd because it's like an abstract idea which is like you you can't imagine the thing that you're not doing because you're not doing it and nobody's written it down and so but equally it's there all the time it's this abstract idea that's like super super important and you know i see this with companies and game teams where you're so focused on doing one thing that you forget to look and say well i could be doing this and You know, I remember making the mistake of trying to get a game from, you know, D145% to D150% or something and spending a year doing that. And of course, you know, eventually came to realize, hang on a minute, we we could just make a game that starts with 55 D1. And in point of fact, we did, we killed it. And then the next game we made came in immediately at 55%. And but of course, you can't see that other game you're not making. And and the same with companies, you know, and individuals in careers. Right? So all the time that you're in with one company doing something that might be very comfortable and but you're not doing something else and yeah. and always trying to figure out to pull out and saying, you know, this is great and comfortable and, you know, okay, maybe this will be successful. But what are my chances of this being successful versus the thing that I'm not doing being successful? And mm. it's a really hard thing to to try and, you know, it's, it's impossible, right, to, to, to answer that question. But as a thought process, I think individuals, companies, game teams should be doing it if they can. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing. So I've, I've been recently writing a piece about regret. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, that's... A- That's okay kind of kind of worms uh, so yeah and and also i guess yeah regret that's the that's a powerful one isn't it i i think that if you're in the games industry and can, can do can meaningfully contribute to a game you're never yeah. going to be short of work and oh, I, i'm obviously generalizing slightly but the jeopardy that people feel about trying things is more than i think there's more jeopardy in staying with something that isn't doesn't have a chance of success But of course, you take comfort and familiarity and change is disruptive. And But actually, the the real jeopardy of things going badly wrong, and by that I mean you you know, can't pay the mortgage or have to move city or something, I think the chances of that are usually pretty slim. And, mm. and it is worth doing the more disruptive thing because, man, regret is, is probably more powerful <laughs> than anything else. It is. Hey, David, some final questions for you. Do you have any favorite books? I do. I, I sort of consume business books and then it sort of goes into my brain and, you know, I enjoy them and then I they, they just sort of get mixed into what I do. I think, I'm not sure it's my favorite book, but uh, one that had a noticeable impact on my working life was Freakonomics. Did you ever read that book? I mean, it's, I haven't. Yeah. Okay. So we had... One of the sections was it was about correlation and causality. Am I getting that right? But the the, the idea that and they cited lots of examples. I like books with examples that talked about. We think that we understand why things have happened in business or in life, and humans like to look for patterns. And 
oftentimes, again, going back to that GDC talk with where there's survivorship bias, then people with great confidence will say, I'll tell you why my game was a success, but they don't know that. And if you actually look at, you know, somebody could do a carbon copy of that game and release it on the same day and will have a very different success. And it's because there's loads of factors that plays, a lot of which you can't really see and control. And for the ego, you want to say, oh, well, it's because we did this as a team. That's why this was successful. But it could absolutely be because of something that you had no influence over and it, you were the right place at the right time or this happened or a streamer picked it up or, you know, you can make your own luck somewhat. But it was really a humbling experience. I think I got used to the idea that, and it, and it helps if you're pitching games as I was at the time, to when I'm going to pitch to Sony saying, here's why the game's going to be a success because we do this, we do this, we do this, and then it's successful. And, and it helps to think of things in that way, but that isn't the reality. Often it's down to things that you have no control over. And I think it's useful to remember that. So that's, uh, you know, that's a book that had an effect on me and it, it helped with some humility, I think. I'm, I'm reading the Matthew Ball Metaverse book at the moment, which which is interesting. I think, you, you know, I'm not sure he's making a great case for Metaverse, about two thirds through it, but it is, he's really rounded up an amazing amount of facts. And sometimes in the games industry, you're so focused on your narrow part of it that you mm. lose track on what's happening in the wider, wider space. And I find that interesting just because he's done a great job of researching where all these technologies are. And that's, yeah. you know, fun to, fun to think about. Yeah, I, I followed his writing and it's really good always. Mm -hmm. Do you have a story that shaped you and how you approach your work today? When I was working at Electronic Arts, I'm going to say around 1995, I was, I guess at that point, I would be a producer. You know, so I'd oversee the production of games and relatively small game teams at that time. And that was my job to try and get a game out on time. And I would go past the boardroom at EA and there'd be uh, executives going through spreadsheets, legal stuff. And I, it was an alien world to me. Like I, I, I didn't understand what it was that they were doing. I, it seemed amazing. And, but I didn't have an MBA. I didn't go to university. I just started working in the games industry. And so that always felt a little out of reach. But I sort of made friends with a guy called Mark Lewis. Mark Lewis ran electronic arts outside of America in the 90s, along with David Gardner, who I guess you know. So the two of them sort of came from California and that founding team of EA and, and sort of made a beachhead in Europe and then Australia and Japan and, you know, outside of America. Anyway, I, I became friends with Mark Lewis and looked after his cats, played a lot of, well, tested, but slash played Dungeon Keeper a lot <laughs> and got stoned a lot. And, you know, during that friendship, he sort of explained to, he described how the business works. So he was the guy in the boardroom that again, what is it he's doing? And what he described is, oh, yeah, well, here's generally how we think about this. And he broke it down for me. And it was way, way simpler than I imagined. You know, it was, okay, well, we're spending, you know, this is the salaries of people making the game. Therefore, the cost of making the game is this. And then this is how much we sell it for. And this is the forecast. And this is how much we have to allow for returns. And it was way, way simpler than I thought. And it gave me the confidence and say, oh, right, is that what it is? Well, I can do that. And mm. OK, I'm still at a point where if you ask me to read a balance sheet, I'm probably not the guy. And if you want me to go through the minutiae of a, con of a contract, 
then you know it's going to take me some time but the principles of running a business aren't that complicated i didn't need an mba for that and i think that in hanging out with him and him sort of demystifying the games industry in that way was hugely powerful you know as i say it wasn't that he taught me the complexities of it quite the opposite he taught me that a lot of it was common sense and you know thinking things through and making common sense decisions and so you know i would say if i was to look at a career to, to, I, I suppose i hadn't thought about it until today but really it's that education that piece that made me think well i can do this on my own then i'm just going to set up my own company and that was you know 22 years ago now <laughs> yeah that's a good place to to start kind of like <laughs> yeah trajectory right. to, to where we are right now thanks david this was so much fun i'm gonna last Last question that I'm going to ask is like for founders out there, maybe want to chat with you. What's the best way to reach out to you? I think probably LinkedIn, although with a caveat, and I don't know how this is for you, but I get like, you know, five, 10 uh, LinkedIn requests a day. All I'd ask that people add a note to it because I, I just don't know whether or not you're trying to sell me something or, <laughs> or, or help me hire people, which is often the case. So add a note and that's a great way to connect, I think. Perfect. Perfect. Hey, David, this was so much fun. Like there were so many things we could have still covered, but like we'll leave something for the next time. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so thanks, thing. thanks a lot. It was great. And also you're okay, I must say, keep doing what you're doing because you know, I, I found so many resources of what I needed to start. Like, you know, this is my fifth company, but like things like the cap table that I think I mentioned this to you on the time, figuring out what's fair way of splitting a company and was just super useful for for me to to set up so keep doing your thing thanks <laughs> thanks david hey take care see you out there yeah for sure bye for now bye thanks again to my guests for joining this show if you have time please go and sign up to our newsletter at elitegamedevelopers.com slash newsletter since every friday morning i send out a piece on gaming startups what I've experienced recently as an investor, things that I'm seeing and thinking about. I really want to share a lot to you guys. So if you have time, please subscribe to the newsletter. That would be awesome. And I'll see you next week on the podcast. Take care. Bye-bye.